What verse was it? John 3.16. That's right, that's right. Um, Tim Tebow, with his eye black, though he kind of rotated through some of those verses, John 3.16 was one of his favorites. Now, I'm not telling you these uh, about these guys in order to condone or to say it's bad uh, that they did what they did and how they tried to get this message out. And actually, for Roland Stewart, I just found this out on Friday, and it almost killed my opening illustration, that he's actually in prison now. Um, he had a really rough, uh, he had a rough time uh, with some other issues going on. So, I'm not, certainly not condoning that. Um, instead, I want to ask the question, Why? Why would all of these athletes who would have some sort of prominent position in TV time, why would Roland Stewart spend his life driving around to all of these places in order to get this message of this one verse out to people? Why would somebody do that? What is so important about this verse that they would do that? The reason that they would do this, is that this verse is one of, if not the most concise statements of the message of the Bible as a whole. And not just the message of the Bible as a whole, the central message of the Scriptures, which is the Gospel. This is this most basic summary of it, and that's the reason it's most familiar in here. I'm sure if we did a show of hands, we won't. As to uh, who has this memorized, even relative to other verses, this would no doubt be the top, right? But there's a real danger in that as well this morning. Um, And and it's dangerous because it is so familiar. And this danger takes two forms. One goes like this. Because we've heard this so many times, we've grown indifferent to it. You just gloss over John 3.16. It's sort of like you live in Colorado and get to wake up and look at the Rocky Mountains every single morning. And that sense of awe that you experienced the first time you saw them lessens over time. You get indifferent, something you get accustomed to. The other danger of this familiarity, though, is that because we've heard it so many times, we assume that we've mastered it and that we don't have any real practical need for it anymore. In other words, we think, yeah, I've heard this so, so many times. I've had this memorized for so long that I now have really almost moved beyond it. It's not worth my time to dig in on this verse anymore. I've kind of moved on to bigger and and, and other things in the Bible as a whole. And I know this is the case because I felt it this week. Because that that was my temptation in even preparing this message, was to say, well, there's got to be something kind of like a new angle or some sort of new take on it, something we might not have seen before. I don't think there is. Um, The dangerous and most tragic thing about this sort of familiarity, though, is that for most of us, this is the, the, the exact opposite of that is true. And that's that you and I need to hear what this passage says more than we probably even realize. Because what this passage speaks of is the love of God for sinful, broken people. And while it might be very easy for you to say, yes, I believe that I am the recipient of God's love, The way that bears itself out in our life is that that belief is betrayed. That we actually really struggle and wrestle to believe that that God has this sort of love for us. Let me illustrate it in this way. In a few weeks, uh, kids are going back to school. And what will happen is a lot of people will take first day of school picks 
and post them to Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You also have a whole lot of mothers crying, and you have a whole lot of fathers trying to do this kind of stuff, not so you don't see that they're crying as well. And you'll have lots of very public hugs and public statements of, I love you, to your kids. And depending on what age your kids are, there will be varying responses to those public hugs and public statements of, I love you. As they get older, the level of comfort with the public I love you's goes this way. And so what happens then, and this is how a, a pastor, Brian Habig, pointed this out, this is sort of what happens with God as well. That we view God like, yeah, we know that He loves us, and so we really don't need to hear about it anymore. You don't need to keep, quit, keep saying it to me. I know. It's okay. Don't keep saying it to me. What I want us to do this morning is to actually try and lay aside this familiarity, to try and look at this verse freshly and hear what it has to say to us about the Word of God. That's why I've waited to read it, because I want to get this out there for us to think about. And I actually want to pray right now first before we read this passage. So let's do that, and then we'll hear the Word of the Lord. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word this morning, and we pray, Lord that you would give us fresh eyes to hear what is the most wonderful message uh, that you have sent your Son into the world to rescue and redeem sinners. Lord, enable us to believe the love that you have for us, to come to know and believe this love. We need your Spirit to do that, and we ask that you would send him this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. John three sixteen through verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light. Lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen what his deeds. That his deeds have been carried out. In God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what I want us to see this morning three points. And it's all about the sending of the Son, this mission of the Son. I want us to see first that the sending of the Son shows us the heart of God. And secondly, the sending of the Son brings us rescue. And thirdly, the sending of the Son calls us to respond. So the sending of the Son shows us the heart of God, brings us rescue, and calls us to respond. So first, verse 16, the sending of the Son shows us the heart of God the Father. What's actually really important about this verse is that it emphasizes not so much what, how Jesus feels about what his mission is, but actually how the Father feels about this mission. 
Um, What's emphasized about the cross here is not that it shows the Son's love. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that, that do emphasize that. But actually what's emphasized is the Father's love. What this passage shows is the heart of the Father, and we see this in a couple ways. First is this, the heart of the Father is seen in why He sent His Son. And this gets at the level of motive as to why the Father would send His Son. Verse 16, it's in love that He did this. But not just love alone, and this is the classic part of this verse, He says, for God so loved the world. He so loved the world, and the emphasis is on the so. And what that's intended for us to do, for, to do for us, is to emphasize the intensity and the extent of the Father's love for this world, for His people. So here's what this means. It means that God, from the very start, chose to send His Son not because He had to. Not because he was obligated to, not because he thought, well, you know, I made this world, I made these people, and they've really made a mess of things, but I'm going to go ahead and I should probably do something about that. None of that at all. God's motive was one of love from the very start. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 that it, is all, it has always been love, that he has for all eternity loved his people even prior to you having been created. His love was upon you. So there's never been a time when he didn't love his people. And so that motive of love shows the heart of the Father from the very start. His motive in sending his Son is one of love. But it also shows in the what or the who that he sent, right? Who did he send? Well, he gave his one and only Son. If you, uh, if you memorize this in the King James Version... You probably memorize it as only begotten, his only begotten son. And actually, the, the more accurate translation there is one and only, his one and only unique son, but that, and that's John's point of emphasis. Saying this is the one son of God, God's son, the one that he's shared perfect fellowship with from all eternity. The one that is the object of his love and affection. It is that son, this one and only unique son, that God has now sent into the world. It's that Son that shows the heart of this Father. It is that love that that God has for you. It looks like a God who would send and give His only Son. Here's what John says in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Here's what this means. It means that God has given Himself. The heart of the Father is such that He has skin in the game. He's given of His very Son, and that's the kind of love that He has. Uh, It's not this kind of love that is something purely emotional, something purely sentimental, something that's kind of like a mushy sort of disposition towards you. It's the kind of love that, that is costly, that results in this action of sending His one and only Son for you. That's the kind of love that God has. This is the heart of the Father. One who so delights and loves His people that He would give His only Son. 
So why emphasize that? Why spend so much time on this and belabor the point? Because what I think, and I know this is true of myself, most of us don't really believe this to be true. I think a lot of us in here think that God loves us reluctantly or because he has to. And here's how this goes. Well, you know, God sent Jesus into the world. He died on the cross and appeased his wrath. And now it's like, well, the Father can't do anything about it. You know, he has to love me now because of what Jesus did. But if he had the choice, he probably wouldn't. It's all because of this legal transaction that took place and what Jesus did on the cross. And so now he must love me, though he might not really want to. That's, I think, what happens. And one of the ways that this doubt shows itself, and there are multiple ways, but one is in this deep sense of insecurity that we have around other people in general. And I, I, I think that a good example of this actually was in the, uh, the Star-Telegram on Thursday. Some of you might have seen this. There was an article uh, that, that was titled, Am I Pretty?, and it was a story about these young girls, these teenage girls, specifically about this 13-year-old girl named Sammy, uh, who had videoed herself asking this question, am I pretty, and then posting it on YouTube, wanting responses. It's been taken down since then, um, but it received 72,000 views and over 2,000 comments. And you can imagine that a lot of the comments were not very kind either. And and this is incredibly sad, of course, to think about. Uh, At the same time, though, what she and I think there were 23,000 hits that come up if you just search for Am I Pretty on YouTube. What these 23,000 girls are doing is actually just putting up on YouTube what what all of us are asking in some form or another. Am I pretty? Am I lovable? Am I acceptable? Am I worthy? Am I of any value at all? And I think whether you are a Christian or not here this morning, you recognize that sort of nagging question that lies in the back of a, of a lot of what you do. It shows itself in the constant questioning of what other people think about you, your employers, your friends, other classmates at school. It shows in what you think about how other moms perceive you as a mother. It shows in how some of you are so frightened about what other people in this room think about you and how they are viewing you right now. And underlying all of that is this deep sense of shame that won't stop. This is how Brene Brown puts this. I've quoted her before on shame. She researches shame. This is a different quote. To shame is that warm feeling that washes over us, making us feel small, flawed, and never good enough. Shame is basically the fear of being unlovable. Now, that might show itself in a perfectionism. It might show itself in a sense of pride. But what is underlying a lot of that is this desire to get rid of this sense of being shameful and unlovable. And it's been like that since Genesis 3. That fear of being unlovable is what causes us to doubt God's love for us. Do you know what God says to you? What he says to you is, I love you so much that I sent my one and only son to die for you. 
I want to be with you so badly. I want to rescue you and draw you to myself in order to be with you so badly that I would give up my own son in order to make that possible. This God says to you in Zephaniah 3.17, I will rejoice over you with gladness. I will exult over you with loud singing. I will quiet you by my love. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? This is how God feels about you. This is the love that God has for you. Do you believe that he sings over you with joy? Do you believe that you are the object of his affection in that way? Because this is what's true. This is what the Bible says. This is the heart of the Father, and it's why he sent his Son. Secondly, the sending of the Son brings us rescue. So God's Son is the gift to us, but I want you to notice the purpose of this sending. The purpose was one of rescue from the very start. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He came to bring eternal life. That's the form of this rescue. So that you wouldn't perish, but instead that you would have this eternal life. So what is this eternal life? I think this is commonly misunderstood. Most of the time you hear eternal life, what do you think? You think of life that doesn't end, like it just keeps going. You're not going to die, right? Um, And that's part of it for sure. But there's something that's much deeper and and, and richer about this as well. Uh, This Greek word that's used here for eternal is also, it's this word for eon, for age. And so you can describe eternal life as aeonic life. That might not strike you as like, oh, that makes me feel rich and loved by God. Um, But what that means is that the way the Bible refers to, to what is sometimes referred to as the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. God, what God will do in the end when he uh, restores and makes all things new. That's also referred to by Paul as the age to come. So what eternal life is, is this, uh, this ter- eternal life, this life of the age to come, this life of the kingdom, this life of the new heavens and the new earth that comes to you now, that you participate in now. It's life united to Jesus. It's life filled with the Spirit of God. It's life reconciled to God. It's life as it was intended to be. Life that you long for and that you were created for. That's what this eternal life is with God. And it's something that we start enjoying now. And that's what this gift of the Son brings. It is this rescue that He brings. And so for some of you, um, it may not be that shame is the issue that you wrestle most with. It may be that believing that this rescue is for you or is hard because of your sense of guilt. You think to yourself, I don't deserve this kind of rescue. And it might be that there are things even in the last few weeks that you have said, done, or even thought that you deeply, deeply regret. And I'm talking about the things that feel habitual and almost like a pattern to you, that you just continue, it's like this ditch that you just continue to fall into over and over again. Things that you look at on the computer, the anger that you show towards your spouse, towards a member of your family, the, the kind of things that you do to your body, that you're sick over, that you hate. 
that you feel weighed down by. And it's not that you did them once, but it's that you continue to struggle and do them. And the picture of God that gets worked up in your mind then is one who might have been initially gracious, but one who's now pretty upset with you and tired of these mistakes that you're making. And you view him as one who is the policeman ready to pounce, who's looking for you to mess up again. If that's you, if that's where you identify in this passage, let me point out to you the type of people that the Son was sent to rescue. Okay? The Son was sent to bring this eternal life and rescue to first the world. Now, that might not mean much to us. Again, it's a familiar passage. But John uses this in a unique way. He's not using the world as in the scope of the world where it's made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and there's this incredible diversity within this, and it's a huge, huge group of people. There might be those elements, but when John talks about the world, either in his gospel or in his letters, it has a really negative sense to it. And so really what he's saying here is that the the world is something bad. The world as associated with the sinful, rebellious character of the world. So this is why he says in his first letter, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's the sense in which he's using world. And it's that sinful, evil, broken, rebellious world to whom the Son was sent to rescue. And John is emphasizing that by using that term. Also shows, though, that he was sent to bring eternal life to whoever believes in him. So in John's gospel, world has this negative connotation. What does he mean by whoever? What he means is whoever, okay? He means anyone. That's the point. He means anybody who has done anything can be a recipient of this grace. That it doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done, this offer comes to you to receive this gift of aeonic, everlasting, rich life with God and to be delivered from what is the alternative, which is to perish. And if you're still not convinced about this, remember verse 17. God sent His Son into the world not not to condemn, but in order that the world would be saved through Him. This is a rescue mission of the Son that is sent here. And so if that's something that, that, if that's a place where you identify, I'd say this to you. Stop keeping God's love at arm's length. Stop thinking that your sin is greater than the work of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. Quit giving your sin that much credit. Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for all of your sin if you have put your faith in Him. Not some of it, not part of it, not just the not-so-bad things, all of your sin. It is finished. Don't give your sin that much credit. Jesus' grace is greater to you. So the sending of the Son shows us the heart of God, brings us this rescue, and lastly, the sending of the Son demands and calls for a response. You see this in the latter portions of this passage, 18 to 21. 
Take a look back there. John describes here two different groups of people based on two different relationships to Jesus. And the options here are pretty stark, right? You have on the one hand, one that is in darkness and falsehood, one that results in perishing and condemnation. On the other hand, you have one that ends in light and in truth, one that ends in eternal life and salvation. And I want you to notice what it is all based upon. It is all based on not whether somebody is good or bad, not based on what somebody has done. It's based completely on how you respond to this invitation of verse 16. It has everything to do with whether you believe in the name of the Son of God or not. And those are the options. The first response is to believe in the name of the Son of God and be rescued. And that's what we see in verse 18 at the very beginning. This is the way to avoid condemnation and perishing. This is the way to be a recipient of this rescue mission, the very purpose for which the Son was sent. That you believe in the name of the Son of God. And at that point, you are free of the condemnation, of wrath, of judgment, at that moment that you put your faith in Jesus. And the reason that John can say this is because Jesus was the one who was, who did experience this wrath, who was condemned, who did perish, in a sense, on the cross by his death. So he can say then that that will never happen to you. That's why Paul can say that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus was condemned for you. That's one response. The other response is not believing in the name of the Son of God and being condemned for it. This is very, very sobering. And if you notice, what John says here is that the one who hasn't believed is actually condemned already. And I think he means that in a couple senses. One is that every person stands in condemnation apart from Christ because of our sin. There's not a person who, who escapes that. We are all children of Adam. We are all guilty before God. But it's also true in that, the, in that there's a sense in which a person would reject this offer of salvation and is condemned for that as well. And the judgment, he says, is this, that we all, apart from Jesus, love the darkness rather than the light. And we are all scared to death of the light because it's going to expose the darkness in us and that darkness is real. And this is how John talks even in the first chapter of his gospel, that the coming of Jesus into the world shows us for who we really are. This is how bad things were. You stand hopeless and helpless apart from the work of the Son on your behalf. And that's really uncomfortable to acknowledge, that we are a people in desperate, desperate need of rescue. And to acknowledge that is really, really frightening. And so what John says is likely the case for some, is that the prospect of being exposed is such that I, I'm not going to move towards the light. In fact, I'm going to run back into the darkness and hide. But what he said in, in the first chapter of his gospel is that this light will shine into the darkness. This darkness will be exposed. It's inevitable. 
When I was uh, about six years old, I decided I wanted to see what it would be like to cut my own hair. Curious about it. So one afternoon, I took my safety scissors in my bedroom, found a good little tuft right in the front. I had hair at the time. Uh, and cut right here. Then I realized, okay, I got to do something about this right here, this hair that I just cut off. And so I take it and go find the trash bin right next to my desk and put it underneath, put the hair there underneath. And I think, okay, dodge the bullet there. Not going to be exposed, you know. Uh, Hid the hair. I'm good to go. And so it was really surprising then when my mom asked me, Brian, did, did you cut your hair? What are you talking about? No, of course not. Of course I didn't cut my hair. That's something of what our attempts to hide from this light are. It's as foolish as trying to put hair underneath the trash bin as if we'll never be exposed. I understand we are scared to death of acknowledging our need, but if that's you this morning, and you have not ever believed in Jesus, you need to know who this light is. This light is not one who's exposing to bring judgment now. This one is the light who offers you salvation and life. This is the one who was sent into the world, this light, to die in order that you might be rescued. In order that you would be a recipient of this love. In order that you would be this recipient of the affections of the God of the Bible. The God of the universe. That is who this God is. And so that's why John can say again in his other letter that there's no fear in love and that perfect love casts out fear because the one that you will stand before is the one who has died for you. That's who this light is. That comes as an invitation to all of us to come to this light and know that he offers this real rescue. And so the question for us then is how will you respond? There's this offer of light, salvation, life, and rescue. And he offers it to every single person. Whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. This is the heart of the gospel. What will you do with it? Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us that has shown and that you would send your one and only Son for us. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us in the midst of our doubts and hesitations in believing that love. And Lord, I pray for those here who might just be hearing of this for the first time, and that you would work in their hearts and give them a great desire to receive and believe this love for themselves by trusting in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that this is your, uh, your rescue operation in this world. We praise you for your love for us and that we can enjoy the benefits of this redemptive work. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.